Britain is still a Christian country. That was a headline on a YouGov report that was published as early, uh, well, as late, maybe that's the better way of saying it, as December 2020. So in 2020, uh, a number of people were asked, do you still consider Britain to be a Christian country? And they, 56%, so still a majority of people in our nation, considered the UK to be a Christian country. Now, although we see the vestiges of our Christian heritage in our history and in our freedoms, in our laws, in our justice system, probably most of us here this morning would say that in practice, the UK is a godless nation, and probably a, uh, an ungodly nation. We see evidence of that all around us every day. We live in a culture which has a disinclination to trust others, especially those in authority. Newspapers can't be trusted. Politicians are perceived as corrupt and self-serving. We live in a culture where there's abuse and racism and a fear of crime and a cancel culture. Immorality is rife. There's a lack of restraint. People do what they want to do to the max as much as they can. There's a celebration and a flaunting of sexual immorality in the media. Perhaps even amongst your work colleagues, there's a cynicism in our culture. There's a disposition to believe the worst about one another. But to put ourselves at the centre of the universe and expect everybody else to serve us. There's a laziness, there's a selfishness, there's a gluttony for sex and power and wealth and fame. So I would say, although 56% of, of these people polled said that the UK is a Christian country, I don't know whether we would agree that it is. I think we would say perhaps it's a, an increasingly anti-Christian culture and an anti-God country that we live in. We definitely live in a hostile, hostile environment. So how, as Christians, living in such a dishonest and harsh and selfish culture, how can we survive? How do we survive without adopting these worldly attitudes? How do we live as the people of God in an anti-God world? Well, the good news is the book of Titus addresses such questions. Titus is a, a tract for our time. It meets us where we're at in 2021 in some surprising ways and it brings with it, as John Stott once said, extraordinary contemporary relevance. It's a powerful little letter and we're going to study it together this morning in brief and then we're going to read it together for the next couple of weeks for our RBT and then we're going to talk about it in the beginning, well the end of June perhaps or the beginning of July. So, would you, if you've turned to Titus, we're going to read verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1, because that's the introductory section, and Paul packs into these opening verses more theological truth than probably anywhere else in his letters except for Romans. And the whole letter is here in the microcosm of verses 1 to 4. As Paul paints a big picture about what he's going to talk about, he presents insightful summaries about the major themes that he's going to develop later in the letter. So, to get a taste of the whole letter which is only really three chapters. You could read it in 15 minutes. We're going to read it together and get a taste for the whole letter in verses 1 to 4. So let's do that together now. Here we go. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, 
And then at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. God's word to us. Now, Titus, Paul immediately tells us in verse 1 that Paul is writing to a young pastor called Titus who's on the island, the Mediterranean island of Crete, that modern day holiday destination which is as hot as it is here today. So we can't go to Crete but it feels a bit Cretish. But when you come to Paul's epistles in the New Testament usually you're able to go back to Acts and you're able to link Acts to something that happens there with a New Testament epistle. So for instance, in Acts 17, you go Paul's trip to Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonica, and then he writes, obviously, two letters to Thess- the Thessalonians, and you see the links between what happened on his missionary journeys and as he church planted and how the church was formed. But for Titus and for Crete, you don't get that. The most we get about Crete is in Acts chapter 2, where on the day of Pentecost, we're told that there were people from Crete in Jerusalem hearing Peter preached and surely responded in faith to the gospel and were numbered, some of them, among the 3,000 that got saved that day. And then presumably these people from Crete, these Cretans, uh, went back to the island and shared the good news with their fellow islanders and churches were established. But Paul also tells us, if we we were to read on in verse 5, that he and Titus were on Crete at some point, completing a successful church planting mission. They were preaching the gospel and then Paul tells us that he left Crete and then left Titus behind to complete the work of establishing healthy and vibrant churches. And so now because there's no mention of Crete in Acts, it probably happened after Acts 28. Paul was probably released from prison. He went on some journeys to preach the gospel and then one of those journeys may have been to Crete, probably was to Crete, and then at some point he was arrested again and executed. But because of the time frame, we probably think that Titus was written in the mid-60s AD. And the reason that Titus is so relevant to us today in 21st century UK is because ancient Crete wasn't too far away from where we're at today. Crete had a reputation for moral decadence. Ancient historians, a guy called Polybius, referred to Cretans as the most treacherous and unjust people. They had a sordid love of gain and a lust for wealth, so much so that they considered piracy as honourable employment. So there you go. If you want to be a pirate, you have to move to Crete. We even see in verse 12, if you look at verse 12 in chapter 1, one of Crete's own philosophers, uh, a man who was, who's not named by Paul, but you can find it in other history books, he was named Epimenides. Not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but my Greek is a bit rusty. Epiminidus, he describes his fellow countrymen in a rather unflattering way. See what he says in verse 12. Paul quotes him. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Can you imagine that? That's one of their own talking about his fellow people. So Crete is a godless culture. It's an ungodly nation. It's a hostile, pagan environment. And yet the gospel has come into that island and it's changed these unpromising people into Christians. 
Amazing, the gospel has broken in and now Titus is charged with helping to establish thriving churches on the island. And so Paul's writing to lay out his key issues, the things that he wants Titus to do to help these churches get healthy. And the message in a nutshell of Titus is that the gospel must be central to the everyday life of the church. The gospel's got to be central to the everyday life of the church. That true believing and true living go together. That belief and behavior go together. Both governed and uh, ring-fenced by the gospel. That faith and practice shall not be separated. And so if you look back at verse 1, Paul tells us this. He says he is working for the sake of the faith of God's elect, God's people, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So Paul is working for, for the faith of God's people that they might have a knowledge of the truth and that that knowledge then would lead them to godly living, to godliness. And he wants Titus to do just the same. He wants Titus to teach the people the truth and then to show them how it leads to a life of godliness. So now the first question is, well, what is this truth? Well, Paul tells us, he develops the, the knowledge of the truth that he wants the, uh, the Cretans to pick up on and he wants us to get hold of as he describes it in verse 2, the hope of eternal life. And the hope of eternal life is found in the salvation that God has brought about in Jesus Christ. So one of the things that you should notice at the end of verse 3, Paul calls God our saviour. And then in verse 4, he references Jesus Christ as our saviour. So he wants Christians to have a firm knowledge of the truth, the hope of eternal life that comes about through God the Saviour and Jesus Christ the Saviour working in tandem to bring it about. So he wants us to be sure about the gospel and he wants the truth of the gospel to create life and he wants the truth of the gospel to change lives as well. And there are two points for this morning as we kind of unpack this book of Titus together. There's an inseparable connection between gospel doctrine and gospel living. That the gospel creates life and the gospel changes lives. And we'll see this developed in the main section of the letter, which runs from chapter 2, verse 1, to the end of verse 8 in, verse, in chapter 3, where there's two distinct but parallel sections about gospel living and about gospel doctrine. So we're going to study these two things together in, the, in our time that remains. And the first thing we're going to look at is the gospel, the gospel truth, it creates life. Gospel truth creates life. If you want some verses to read in your own time, this, you can find these sections in, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, and in chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, where Paul is very clear, the gospel truth creates life. Now, he's already told us that in verse 1. He's saying he's preaching the gospel. He's, he's leading people to the truth. And, and it's, a, it's a truth that tells them that God is a God who saves. God is a God who saves. God is the Savior and Jesus Christ is the Savior. And yet they are working together to outwork a plan that they had designed before the ages began, he tells us, to save people from this world of sin and cynicism and fruitlessness and death and bring people into eternal life and an eternal fellowship with God. And then what Paul it talks about implicitly, like, if you like, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, he then develops explicitly in chapter 2, 11 to 14. Would you read that with me? Or at least the beginning bit. This is what Paul goes on to say. He says, For the grace of God has appeared 
bringing salvation for all people. And then verse 3 of chapter 3, or, or, or verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Saviour, appeared, He saved us. So Paul is talking about grace coming in the flesh. That God's loving kindness and goodness appeared with a face and that face was Jesus who came on a rescue mission to save sinners from death. Look what he says. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And then further on in in verse 14. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. And he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So Christ has come on a rescue mission to give himself up to save people from their sins. Now look at how Paul describes us in chapter 3, verse 3. The kind of sinners that we are. For we ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. And we were wasting away our days in malice and envy. Hating by being hated by others and hating one another. It's a pretty damning description of people apart from Jesus. Foolish, disobedient, wandering away, wasting our time, hating people and being hated, living in sin, wallowing in sin and wallowing therefore in opposition to God, away from him. And yet, Paul tells us, God sends his goodness and his loving kindness and his grace with a face on in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes the initiative and he comes and he saves us. Look at how Paul describes it in verse 5 of chapter 3. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. He didn't save us because we had worked to contribute something towards it. He didn't save us because there was any merit in us that deserved saving. He did it solely due to his mercy. And the gospel truth that Paul wants us to get hold of is that it creates life. God in his rich and abundant mercy and goodness and loving kindness, has poured out his grace upon unworthy, hell-deserving sinners. And he's done it in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who died in our place on our behalf to rescue us, to save us from our sin and from the eternal consequences of our sin. And he did it to produce life in us, an eternal life and a hope that is unwavering and unshakable, and unperishing, and unfading, as Peter says, kept in heaven for us. The Son of God himself came to redeem us and to save us from the penalty and the punishment of sin and to give us life. The gospel truth creates life. Look at what Paul goes on to say in chapter 3 verse 5. He hasn't saved us because we were righteous. He's done it by his own mercy and he's done it through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God regenerates us. He renews us. He gives us new life. He gives us new hearts. He gives us the new birth that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. He makes that which was dead alive. The gospel brings life as God breathes into our hearts by his Holy Spirit and brings us from death to life. 
But that's not all. Look at what he continues to say in verse 5. God has washed us. He's renewed us with the washing of regeneration. He's washed us clean. Messy sinners. Those people that were in verse 3. Foolish, disobedient, led astray. Slaves to passions and patterns of sin that were against God. Living, wasting our days in malice and envy and hatred. God has washed us clean. Not because we dipped into some water. Not because we used Daz to whiten our own whites. But because Christ and the Holy Spirit together work out God's plan of salvation to take our dirty laundry away from us and instead give us the righteous white robes of Jesus Christ. So that all of our sins and all of our guilt and all of our shame and everything that we've ever done in, in opposition to God has been washed away and cleansed and forgiven forever. And Paul tells us then in verse 7 that we are justified that we're declared acquitted, we're declared righteous in the law court of God's divine courtroom. We're justified. We're declared righteous. We have right standing with God, but not that God has just wiped our slate clean. He goes on to say then at the end of verse 7, we also have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's not just that he's redeemed us. It's not that he's just washed us. It's not that he's just declared us justified. He also then has adopted us into his family. We've become his people, his treasured possession. And we're heirs of all that he has and all that he is. And he shares his very life with us. That life of eternal life. And he gives us hope for the future. And so Paul wants us to be really clear. And he wants Titus to be clear. And he wants the Cretan Christians to be clear. And he wants Bristolian Christians to be clear. That gospel... The gospel brings life to the dead. And it's a total salvation from all sin to complete forgiveness. And it's a total salvation from death to life. And it's all because of God's own free grace in Jesus. And it is amazing. So if you are not, if you're a Christian and you're not here and you wonder, well, what is it that makes you a Christian? Is it because we're any more moral? Is it because we're any more clever? Is it because we're any more meritorious than you? Absolutely not. Paul reminds us it is all of grace and it's all of God's doing. Even the faith that we have to believe the truth comes as a gift from God so that none of us can boast. So perhaps you're here today and you're hearing the gospel for the first time or the fifth time or the 50th time or the 500th time. God's invitation remains the same. When we walked in, if we're apart from Christ, we find ourselves numbered in verse 3. Foolish, disobedient, led astray and slaves to sin. But you can leave finding yourselves in verse 4 to 7. Because the loving kindness and the grace of our God has appeared in Jesus Christ and he has come to save you from your sins. All you need to do is to put your hope and your trust in him. Acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your mess, and then turn away from it and turn to Christ, who died and rose again to save you. And if you do this, gospel truth, the gospel truth is just as powerful today in the 21st century United Kingdom as it was back in ancient Crete. It will bring eternal life to your soul. And if we're here and we're Christians, this truth of eternal life that we have experienced should make us the happiest, most joyful, most uh, grateful people on the planet. We should walk around with big smiles on our faces, even under our masks, because Jesus has transformed us 
from death to life. And it is good news. And it's better than the sunshine. And it's better than England winning the football. Hard as that is to believe. God has done something incredible in Jesus. And he's done it for us. And that should make us happy, happy people. Amen? You can say that outside. Hey, thank you very much. We should get more responsive preaching. Don't you reckon, Sandra? <laughs> anyway, Paul says it's not just enough to believe the right things. We, they should also have an effect upon us. And that's the second thing um, that we see. That the gospel not only creates life, but it changes lives. The gospel changes lives. This is chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul is a great evangelist, but he wasn't just content with people coming to faith. He wanted them to grow in their faith. He wanted their lives to continue to change. And so he sets this forth clearly for us. If In verse 1, if we go back to our introductory section, he says he's working for the faith of God's people, for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, or more accurately in the Greek says, which leads to godliness. So Paul is working for the faith, that people might have faith in the truth of the gospel, so that they might be led towards godliness. So the truth of the gospel not only brings life, it changes our lives. It leads us into godliness. It's, it's a faith that is supposed to bear fruit. Not enough just to believe the right things. They should have an inevitable difference, make an inevitable and visible and tangible difference in our lives. We're called to bear fruit for God. Godliness is about living God-pleasing lives. Now notice Paul says he's working for faith and knowledge that then leads to godliness. He's not saying be godly so that you can be righteous. He's, we've got to get the order right. He's preaching the gospel to incite faith. He wants his hearers to hear the truth and to experience salvation. But this knowledge of salvation produces godliness. That the gospel is not just the entry point into the Christian life, it's the very heart of the Christian life. It enables and it guides all that we do. It's supposed to change us. God is washing us and renewing us and he's saving us so that we are different in the way that we live. Look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. He tells Timothy, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Well, Let's work that back. What, what accords with sound doctrine? Well, we're told in verse 1, verse 1, that truth accords with godliness. So if truth accords with godliness, sound doctrine accords with godliness. They work one way and then it works back. So he's saying to Titus, teach godliness. Teach what it looks like to be godly. Teach the effect of the gospel on the lives of Christians. And then he goes on to tell Titus and us what that looks like. And he explains what godliness and right gospel living looks like in the context of the family and the church in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. And then he tells us what godliness looks like in relation to the outside world in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. That people being saved out of the world but still living in the world in an immoral culture, we need to live lives that reflect the gospel in our family, in our church life and in the outside world. He says, teach that which is in accord with sound doctrine. What does sound doctrine produce? It produces godliness. Now he, offers, he obviously goes on to, at the beginning of chapter 1, to talk about leaders because Paul knows and he wants Titus to know that if Christians are going to live 
godly lives in an ungodly culture, we need people to help us to do that. We need leaders to teach us. We need leaders who are setting an example uh, of the fusion between belief and behavior, who, although are not perfect, are trying genuinely to hold together and practice what they preach. But then Paul describes the life of the Christian. He, taught, he addresses old men, he addresses older women, he addresses young men and younger women, he addresses slaves, which in our context might be seen as employees. And he lists some very specific actions and some specific duties here. These are not haphazard, these are not mere suggestions, they're not cultural norms of Crete that he's encouraging people to take on. He's not just saying live this way for the sake of mission, he's saying no. These things that I'm talking about here in chapters 2 and 3, they are truth that changes you to live differently so that you reflect God in the culture. He draws a distinction, if you notice, between false teachers that are at work in the church in chapter 1, verse 16, who deny their profession of faith by their lifestyle. That they're detestable, they're disobedient, they're unfit for any good work. But then he calls us at the end of... Uh, verse 10, to live in a way that adorns the gospel. So he's drawing this distinction. There's a way that you can live that dishonors the gospel. And the false teachers are doing that. And there's a way that you can live that honors the gospel. And the gospel teaches us, he tells us in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and instead to live upright and self-controlled lives. So Paul's point is that theology divorced from piety is hypocrisy. If you believe something but you don't live it out, you don't really believe it. Theology divorced from piety, from a changed life, is hypocrisy, which then becomes fertile soil for apathy and apostasy. John Stott once said that any doctrine that does not lead you to God and lead you to Godliness is profoundly bogus. We're to live in a way that honours the gospel. Our lives, Paul is going to tell us in Titus, should be continually being transformed and changed in visible and tangible ways in line with the gospel and apart from and different to the immoral society around us. And although we don't add to the beauty of the gospel in how we live, we can shine a light on the gospel by how we live. That as we live out its principles, as we live out the practices that the scriptures call us to, as we display its power, we advance its message in the world, showing that it's worth giving your life for. So as followers of Jesus Christ, Paul would say to us in Titus, you can either be an eyesore for the gospel, or you could be a beautiful ornament for the gospel that shines forth and reflects its goodness. And he wants Titus to make this clear. He wants Titus to make, uh, make clear that the gospel produces godliness. But it's not just a list of do's and don'ts. If you follow Paul's line of thinking, what you'll see is that the gospel changes people's lives so that we're zealous for good works, so that we're ready for good works, so that we're devoted to good works, and ultimately we're devoted to doing good and helping others to be fruitful for Jesus. And Paul's expectation is that as the gospel is preached clearly in Crete, it will produce godly, Christ-like Christians.
Christians. And our expectation as we study this book over the next month together will be that as the gospel is preached, it will produce Christ-like Christians in Bristol. Let's pray.